it's over 9,000! Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. Yeah, uh, this is the beginning. Uh, this place stinks. If you have good recall listeners, you'll remember that last episode, Bikini said all scrappers were smelly garbage eaters who have no honor or decency. Okay, first it's cabbage, and keep your voice down. These filthy mongrels realize before too long that they outnumber us. If they had scouters, they'd realize that their numbers don't matter. None of these clanbage eaters has a power level above even 100. Good evidence of how we should all avoid that food if we want to maintain our strength. Speaking of which, even though this place smells like a wet sock, there are some decent eats to be found in these scrapyards. I've stripped the Terillium off several power ionizers and feel satiated for the first time in a while. The Freezer Force synthetic meals can sustain a guy, but they're not as satisfying as the real deal. That sounds a little too close to criticism for comfort, Recruit. I said they can sustain one's life, didn't I? They're edible. That's more than I can say about the meals served on Quandrel 7, where I took my vacation last year. Well, this is no vacation, Recruit. Though listeners... You would not believe what we're seeing on this planet, whose name we unfortunately don't know. While the features of the planet itself are mostly unremarkable, it's just a crater-filled rocky landscape with the occasional rock outcropping and a dull beige tint, there are mounds upon mounds of scrap heaps. They're comparatively, as in comparative to the size of a planet or even a full-scale city, small heaps at somewhat regular intervals. The cadjage eaters scuttle around on top of these heaps, sifting their way deftly through the wreckage with a speed and fluidity that belies their flabby, gray, saggy, wet exteriors. Yeah, that just makes them creepier. And the stringy hair and beady red eyes don't help at all. Also, three arms? What kind of creature has three appendages? Hey, they appear to be a great mechanics, so it's somehow to their advantage in that respect. Keep your eyes peeled for a quantum phase generator, the cabbage eaters of this planet were kind enough to let us peruse their scrap piles for any parts we might need. You think that's what they said. They might have told us to walk this way or to our prison cells or our execution. Would they not escort us if that were the case? They're installing the other parts right now. They seem to understand we could defeat them all with the flip of our wrists. We just need to find this piece so we can settle up with the cabbage eaters and be gone. How are we paying them, by the way? You can't possibly have offered such a weak and essentially garbage-filled planet a membership into the Lord Frieza's empire. Absolutely not. It seems a near miracle that these clambage eaters have even achieved spaceflight. They speak no language we understand, or that our scouters can even translate. They have no warriors worthy of the Frieza Force, and while their parts will do until we can get to a Frieza planet for a full repair, this is more of a garbage dump than a scrapyard. No, recruit. We'll not be offering a place among Frieza's empire to a planet full of creatures that know how to fly, but not how to even build a suitable dwelling structure. Lord Frieza has seen fit to bestow upon us quite a bit of petty cash and excess resources for use at our discretion on this mission. These cadage eaters seem fond of the metals in our floor panels. 
We have several extra in the cargo hold, and we could even let them take a few from non-strategic locations throughout the ship, since we plan to head to the nearest Frieza planet right after this. No wonder these wretches can't attempt to smell half-decent. They are obsessed with flooring. And hey, speaking of flooring, kind of, let's talk about the floor of the World Martial Arts Tournament, as well as the participants and the tournament as we tackle this week's topic of discussion. And this week we'll be going through episodes 20 through 23 of the anime, which is the preliminaries and the quarterfinals of the tournament. So episode 20, you know, 19 and 20 kind of kind of smushed together a little bit with getting to the tournament and also reuniting all of our characters with one another you know Goku and, and Yamcha and Bulma finally meet up again and they're introduced to Krillin for the first time I honestly can't remember if that happens in episode 19 or 20 but they they all get back together and they start the preliminaries for the the world martial arts tournament and the preliminaries are quite a bit different than the actual matches you you have a hundred. It's like a hundred thirty something. Did they say one thirty eight or something like that? It was somewhere around there. It was like one thirty eight or one thirty six, I think. The and they're all just given a number randomly, depending on what what like block of numbers you're in. That's you fight against that block of numbers, and it. I can't. I honestly don't remember if it's like a block of ten or a block of twenty or something like that. But you fight in that block until they determine eight quarterfinalists from that block and you fight on a ring and you win via either ring out or submission or the fight is only allowed to last for one minute and at the end of that one minute a judge will determine the winner of the fight Goku steps in the ring to get in his first fight it's against like this huge huge dude and the guy's like this isn't even a challenge and Goku Runs right past him because he still isn't used to his improved speed from Roshi's training yet. And goes to tap the guy to be like, hey, I'm back here. And that little tap knocks him out of the ring. And so he tells Krillin, like, hey, we need to we need to be careful. I think this training worked better than we thought it worked. <laughs> they breeze their way through the quarterfinals with Krillin kind of getting the the culmination of his little mini arc here. Uh, with him getting revenge on the other monks from Orin Temple who treated him badly. And then we have our eight quarterfinalists. And we then, over the next three episodes, have our quarterfinal matches. The first one is Goku versus a fighter named Bacterian. Bacterian being a giant bulking behemoth who never has bathed in the entirety of his life. And all of his... Attacks are based around being stinky and disgusting. I bet he smells like some of these cabbage eaters. Oh, maybe. <laughs> um, Krillin winds up winning in a rather ridiculous fashion. <laughs> in that Goku tells him, hey, all those smells are in your mind because you don't even have a nose. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> Our next quarterfinal match is Ranfan versus Nam. Nam or Nam is a like Buddhist Indian fighter, and Ranfam is a very attractive woman. She attempts to win by stripping into her underwear and distracting him, and he beats her, so Nam is the winner. Then we have Roshi versus Yamcha. And we well, it's not Roshi. Technically. I well, think you mean Jackie Chan. Yeah. It's Jackie Chun. Who is clearly not Roshi. Right. Could never be Roshi. <laughs> but yes, it's, it's Jackie Chun versus versus Yamcha. And, you know, Jackie Chun is this very elderly guy with a long white beard. But he has hair, so clearly he's not Roshi. Uh, but he winds up winning very easily. And so Krillin and Goku are both like, ooh. This Jackie Chung guy just defeated Yamcha. He's Yamcha a little trouble in the Bronx, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and then the final quarter, quarter final match is 
Goku versus Giren. Giren is like a dragon monster. And during this match, Goku's tail grows back. That may or may not be important for later. And Goku winds up winning when he busts out of an unbreakable uh, web of holding, basically, that Giren has trapped him in. And Giren is so terrified of that feat of strength, he he submits and says he quits. So our semifinals are set. It is Krillin versus Jackie Chun and Goku versus Nam, and that's where we leave off. There's a couple little little things about this episode, these this batch of episodes itself. Before a lot of we, nice little Easter eggs. Yeah, before we get into kind of breaking down the characters and, and some of the backgrounds and, and cultural stuff. There's a moment where the, the announcer can't pronounce Goku's name, and he says, like, Gokea. This is a joke that works better in the original language. The kanji for Goku's name can actually be read two different ways. I forget what the other one is, quite frankly. But it can be read two very different ways, depending on the pronunciation, whether you're using like a new school pronunciation or an old school one. And the announcer just chooses the wrong one. The joke, though, also then, is that Goku himself is too uneducated to even know that his name can be pronounced two different ways. <laughs> and... When they bring out like the master of ceremonies to kick off the tournament and he woofs into the microphone, that's another one of those kinds of things. In Japanese, the word woof is this is pronounced or is their onomatopoeia for it is wan. That's also the homophone for the Japanese approximation of the English number one. And we know Toriyama plays with using English words in his manga a lot. So this dog who's supposed to be like this enlightened being and is kicking off the ceremony with this quote unquote, like important speech. All he says is Juan, which is just like woof, but it's also kind of saying match number one. And also kind of saying that there can be only one winner. And also like, there's all these little bits and meanings to it. And it's all so silly, like that. It's both supremely insightful and just the, that a dog would say everyone does a pratfall classic that's the punchline the the demon faces that are carved into the gates in in hindu culture the gates that they walk through and even the 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 wall behind them on the the tournament stage they're reminders that time consumes everything so you must live a good life while you can you walk through this gate in the beginning, when they're when they're registering, you walk through the gate into the inner area to symbolize you're leaving a purely earthly realm and entering a more spiritual place. Hindu temples typically have three circles inside of them that are meant for increasingly deeper spiritual connections. The the two monk, the last thing before I pass it off to Bikini to tell us some more about the other characters. The two monks that bully Krillin are his senpai from Orin Temple. And senpai in Japan is a superior uh, or a mentor or something like that. And it is it is like a mentor-mentee relationship. And that sort of subservience is supposed to hold for the duration of the time that the two parties know each other. So someone is always supposed to be your senpai. And you're always supposed to be sort of underneath them because they're like your mentor. Given what we know about Toriyama watching movies and TV while he works, I think these two might possibly be modeled after a comedy duo that appear in the 1964 movie Gidra the Three-Headed Monster. They're unnamed in the film, but they're portrayed by Ichiya and Senya Aozora, apparently no relation, who were supposedly playing themselves and characters that they portrayed in a similar type of actual show that was popular at the time. Sort of like a Star Search slash Where Are They Now kind of a thing. They have this odd couple thing going on, these two characters in the movie. And their appearance is brief, but fairly memorable. There's enough history with oddly matched pairs as comedy duos, though, such as Ichiro Arashima and Frankie Sakai, who also have differing builds like the Azora pair and the two monks that Toriyama could be pulling this from anywhere. And from, we'll see another example of this later on. It's called Manzai comedy where one, this gets into in the semifinals. I believe it is Goku and Krillin are each interviewed and like Krillin's the straight man and Goku's the jokester. 
it's called manzai comedy. It's a very traditional, common thing in Japanese comedy comedians to have like a two man gag where it's like an Abbott and Costello. Um, but I just wanted to bring up Ichiro Arashima and Frankie Sakai because they're in Godzilla movies. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm going to use that <laughs> excuse whenever I can. But also Ichiro Arashima, I just want to bring other things to people's attentions whenever I can. He's in a really great underseen Bond spoof called Iron Finger that is hilarious. And so is, I believe, the. there's another one. Um, they're both by the same director. It's called like Booted Babe or something like that. If you look up Japanese Bond parodies, you'll probably figure out the name of the other one. And Frankie Sakai is in another great underseen movie called The Last War, which is about Japan's unique position geographically being so close to the Soviet Union and especially the Korean Peninsula during the Cold War and also being considered a U.S. ally where we said the U.S. says if Japan is attacked, they consider it an attack on the U.S. So I'll pass it off to Bikini to tell us some more about some of the other characters. So yeah, so we're going to talk about some of the uh, quarterfinalists, starting with Bacterian, who is obviously based on like pro wrestlers, probably more specifically like George the Animal Steel and Andre the Giant, uh, guys whose ring attire was pretty plain, but they let their size and bombastic personality do their character work for them. Uh, the anti-hygiene thing is something Toriyama may have invented on his own. Uh, though others in the wrestling world have come since then who have used this as a gimmick. It's possible Bacterian was as inspired Bastion Booger, maybe? You be the judge. <laughs> uh, as for the fight, Toriyama said, uh, quote, To be honest, I greatly prefer these sorts of silly fights to serious battles. In terms of what I find truly enjoyable while drawing the series, the story's uh, full of this kind of idiocy here at the top. End quote. And of course, I love that he uses idiocy to describe like <laughs> describe his, his own, own work. work. Yes, it's that's very very humbling. <laughs> Next up for the uh, uh, quarter finalists, or sorry, not quarter, yeah, quarter finalists, right? Yeah, Jackie Chun, as we discussed earlier, totally not, totally not Master Roshi. <laughs> Obviously, parody for Jackie Chan, uh, most notable because rather than use like an approximation of Chan's birth name or his his Chinese stage name. Uh, Japan uses an approximation of his American English stage name, uh, and so Toriyama grows up hearing the name uh, like Jackie Chen. If he had grown up with Chan's Chinese stage name of Chen Long, uh, the character would probably be called something like Chung Long or Cheng Long or something similar to that. Spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, it's it's totally Roshi. Uh, as we mentioned, he's there to make sure Goku and Krillin don't win the tournament, which we don't know for sure yet. But we do find out, and it's not to embarrass them or put them in their place or anything like that, but so that they don't think that becoming the best martial artist in the world is just a matter of training with him for eight months, and then they're done. Uh, he just wants to make sure that they stay on the path of their shugyo for the rest of their lives and continue to improve for the rest of their lives, which, again, ties into his philosophy on martial arts. Uh, his fight with Yamcha is the first time we hear or see someone reference sensing someone's key, as Yamcha says that he can't sense the old man's key. This is the first tip-off that Jackie Chun is a powerful fighter, uh, because only the most experienced warriors can suppress their key. Next up, we have Ranfan, named after the Chinese words, or sorry, Chinese, Japanese words for lingerie and Ranjeri and Fandishan. I think I'm saying those right. Uh, the term came to Toriyama while thinking of his time drawing ads during his first years of the workforce, uh, you know, when he was drawing socks and household appliances and things. Uh, he's a clone of a Dr. Slump character named Renault Citroën, who uses her sexiness as a weapon, which is exactly what Ronfon does. Yep. Then, of course, the last one, or not the last one, second to last one, is Nam. Though he looks somewhat typically Indian, he's actually wearing a traditionally Buddhist get up or clothing if you will uh interestingly though he's also has a bindu which is the 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 traditionally hindu signify that one has mastered their chakra and achieved inner balance so at first glance nam appears to just be indian but 
he has an interesting mixture of Buddhism and Hinduism, which is probably a, 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 a callback again to Journey of the West. His name is derived from the traditional Buddhist prayer Namu Amida Butsu. I hope I'm saying that right. Close uh, enough which for means, me. <laughs> which means I adore and take refuge in Amida Buddha. Amida Buddha is a being who is said to have created a land of purity that others can be reborn into in order to become Buddhas themselves and bring salvation to others. Uh, those who chant the prayer as a mantra are said to be capable of attaining mindfulness of the Buddha, replacing 10,000 thoughts with one so that the mind becomes simultaneously empty and at the same time full of Buddha. The more you can successfully detach from the material world and give yourself over to this, the greater your chance for enlightenment. It's considered one of the easiest ways to achieve enlightenment, which also makes it one of the most misunderstood. Uh, but so many people chant the prayer at the beds that it kind of becomes synonymous with Buddhism. And so Toriyama is telling us that Nam is a Buddhist. Um, he's not just inspired by Buddhist traditions like some of the other characters. Right. He's, he's saying that Buddhism is actually a religion that exists in the world of Dragon Ball. <laughs> How very astute of him. <laughs> Uh, it's through our introduction to Nan that we see another of Roshi, I mean Jackie Chun's supernatural powers, specifically heart reading, where he can kind of like connect his heart to another person's and sort of see their inner desires and their, their personal truth, kind of gauge almost like the soul of the individual. Um, Nam's fight with Ranfan is a good example of internal and external battles. Uh, Nam's having to overcome his internal struggle with lust, his Buddhist beliefs. Uh, and use that victory over himself to help achieve victory in his external combat against Ronfon. And lastly, uh, we have Giran. Tori says, quote, it simply feels like a typical kaiju name, end quote. And I tend to agree. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. It sounds something like, say, Godzilla kaiju Gigan or the Gamera kaiju uh, Giron, which is surprisingly similar so that, yeah. I mean, that's probably where he pulled it from yeah uh he's a big brute and his fight with goku is yet another use of toriyama using opposites clashing uh it's also when goku grows back his tail which i'm not sure if toriyama's ever really comment why or when he decided he was okay with drawing the tail again but if you're looking for like a story reason and uh one that actually carries through kind of as a, as a sort of an undertone to the series you could kind of go with every time Goku's backed into a corner or really say in general, his Ozuru subconsciousness takes over and gives him kind of like a, a like a strength boost almost to give to help get him out of that situation. And as the series goes on, this boost just becomes more sophisticated, usually in the form of, say, a Super Saiyan transformation. But in this one case, it regrows his tail for him because that's you know what will help him escape getting thrown out of the ring. And I think we also see the same thing with uh, – Gohan and Z as well. I think when he's training with Piccolo, Piccolo removes his tail and blows up the moon, I think, to prevent a transformation. And yes. then when they're in that dire situation fighting against Vegeta, his tail grows back and he becomes an Ozaru to fight Vegeta. Uh, so so before we get on to the inspiration and, and stuff behind the tournament itself, are, are any of these... How do you feel about any of these more one-timey kind of characters? I mean, Nam, obviously, re he reappears in the next tournament. I don't think any of the other ones do. Yeah. I don't really recall them ever. If they do, they, they're maybe background characters. I mean, like, so I, me personally, I really like Bacterian, but mostly just because of the gag that Krillin doesn't have a nose and therefore shouldn't be able to smell him. I, I just he think that's funny. Yeah. Um, but like Ron Fon's another one of those instances where like, ooh, this is kind of didn't age too well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I That one is also the toughest fight because we don't really know these characters at this point at all. Right. right? And even Nam, he's got a he's got kind of an interesting sort of sort of motivation to him because he's not the prototypical like oh there's gonna be a bad guy in this tournament you know like right. when we when we get to these final four which are it's jackie chun versus krillin and nam versus goku they all have 
good intentions in wanting to win. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I th- me personally, I think Roshi's also doing it for the money. But but yes, there is that less teaching his students to continue pushing themselves. Right. But there's uh, and then you look at Koku and Krillin and they're there just because they want to test themselves. And then Nam's right. there mostly for the money, but it's for a good reason. And I think a lot of these other fighters are strictly just there for Deej and and to get rich. Right. And so that's. It is kind of just interesting that those are the four that are left. So, like, you know, Nam at least gets this kind of underdog kind of you're rooting for him kind of thing going for him. But, like, I I really could not care too much about who wins between Nam and Ron Fon, you know? I mean, I, I'll say I'm glad it's Nam because I, I, I find his fights to be a little bit more interesting. Yeah. Well, and for Ron Fon, I mean... She would get wrecked pretty quick by either Goku or Krillin, right? I mean, definitely Goku. Definitely Goku. Krillin might Krillin might have uh, issues if he was fighting her in her underwear. And then, and then, I'm just so glad we never had to see Jackie Chun face off with her. Oh yeah, I agree 100 percent on that. That would have been a mess. Um. But yeah, I, I think of all of these kind of like early characters and fights, the one the one that really doesn't kind of grab me much in one way or another is Giren. You know, I know I know Toriyama likes kaiju. I love kaiju. I think that is like a great kaiju name, and he's got some cool kaiju powers to him. But like the fight, just the fight itself, like I don't know. You know, like we talked about, we when you see. Krillin's Krillin's fight is a funny and B also still has that level of needing to overcome some some sort of internal thing in order to prove himself you know mm-hmm. like he he needs to overcome his personal blocks about this guy's hygiene in order to win the fight it's a there's an there's there's that internal external sort of fight going on with with Goku and Giren, I just I don't get that piece of it as much and because it's then, I mean it's not there <laughs> yeah and then and then Giren just quits and I do like the build up to that fight quite a bit and you could maybe argue that that's kind of the point is like that's the one that has the best build up with him going into the him a bullying Goku in the first place. And then Goku stares him down in the rain, you know? Yeah. And then, and then him walking into the, the, the bar or whatever later that night and ordering milk and everyone mocks him and he beats them all up. Just drops like six guys. Like it's nothing. Yeah. So you could say like, Oh, the, the buildup is great. And then maybe the point is that the fight itself is kind of a letdown after a great build. But Maybe, it, but I it, it wasn't even like a like a satisfying letdown. Yeah, it it clangs a little hollow, you know. And I think part of it is this is the one time where, you know, something like that happens, and and Toriyama doesn't doesn't treat us with a a pratfall, you know, like. Yeah. And I almost think I almost think I it almost would work wonder... better too in that respect of like build it up and then have the actual fight be a letdown and have that be like the joke, if there was really no fight at all. You know, you have Goku get into the ring with him and do one thing. He just, that and shows then he just immediately goes, I quit. Yes. <laughs> it's like that, that uh, there's like a, a web comic floating around where it's like a boxing match. And the one guy, like as soon as the bell rings, he starts doing the Kamehameha like pose <laughs> and everything and saying the word. And the other guy goes immediately, just goes, I quit. And then it cuts <laughs> to like the, the post fight, like uh press, uh, interview or whatever and he's like yeah he probably couldn't but i wasn't gonna mess around and find out (laughs) yeah i I think that would work but that's not what we get i almost wonder if he wrote himself into a corner with the the unbreakable bonds thing and throwing goku out of the ring to the point where he was just like oh man i've got to really pull something out here to just get him back in the ring and i don't have any ideas left for what to do for the fight maybe yeah that's that's kind of how it seems to me it is 
it's also one of the it is one of the like cheapest like this might be one of the cheapest like plot armor moments in all of Dragon Ball. You know, people people talk about that a lot like, oh, of course, like when we get into super and stuff later. Oh, of course, Goku wasn't going to actually get killed by hit cuz he has plot armor and like there's still ways to explain a lot of those things because Goku is like the best fighter in the world. This though is him very clearly cheating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And them saying, oh, it's okay if you we'll cheat this time. <laughs> and that's like, a, yeah, so yeah, this, that whole fight is probably the, the letdown of, of the bunch of them. Um, but let's talk a little bit about a tournament and why a tournament, right? You know, here Toriyama has said, we're going to change this from a gag manga to a battle manga. And we're going to start having more fights. And so... You know, yeah, okay, in that perspective, a tournament works, but you could have just built up a villain and had a villainous fight. So why a tournament specifically? Well, Toriyama knew that the clock was ticking on gaining some popularity, and he remembered that when he did the Grand Prix events in Dr. Slump, they were the most popular runs of the manga. And he figures the battle manga equivalent to a long race, that's a, a Grand Prix, is a tournament. Something that can be an event unto itself, drawing in readers and letting them wonder who's going to win. Torishima, for his part, he knew it was going to be a hit as soon as Toriyama gave him the idea. He says, quote, The Japanese love tournaments. They like having this simple system to show who is winning and still in the game. They're both fans of baseball, and they know that many young people in Japan are as well because of the popularity of the Little, Little League World Series in Japan. They figure an audience, their audience, understands the format the idea of the training that goes into prepping for it and they can get behind the thrill of victory the agony of defeat and everything that goes into a tournament even if they haven't been following the manga religiously up to that point Torishima is also aware of the popularity of fist of the north star and how that manga took inspiration from bruce lee fights and movies to make its action read well and he nudges toriyama towards connecting those dots in his manga which toriyama does by taking inspiration from Jackie Chan's style of fighting in his films. He certainly sprinkles in Bruce Lee homages like Goku and Krillin. They both fight in a style of no style. Roshi never teaches them any sort of turtle style of fighting. Also, Krillin fights a Bruce Lee character who even does Bruce Lee moves. And and noises too, I think. Yeah. And, and then another character is inspired by the main villain of a Bruce Lee movie, the big boss, in the preliminary rounds. But for Toriyama to draw his action itself, which he's never done a ton of, he goes for this Jackie Chan sensibility, which makes it flow well with his specific style. I'm in the tournament, and I love how the narrator says this in Japanese. It's Tenkaichi Budokai. Uh, which means number one under the heaven martial arts tournament. Uh, number one, you know, with the joke with the, the dog earlier. So the number one under heaven isn't really a reference to the tournament itself, but rather the champion who ends up winning. Uh, they become crowned the supreme champion of all martial arts outside of the heavenly realms. At this point, Dragon Ball has yet to really introduce any godly characters, um, but the Taoist culture of heavenly realms is widely understood by a Japanese audience. Uh, Toriyama writes the name in kanji to denote that it's old school and gives it sort of like that austere, mystical, and and uh, reverent air to it. Uh, this tournament's born out of ancient customs where two fighters would duel, often to the death, uh, to resolve disputes between dojos. Um, but what about the ring itself? The platform is part of Indian traditional martial arts and transfers to Chinese Kung Fu, where the platform is called a Leitai. I hope I'm saying that right. I think that's The stakes it. of fighting to the death lower somewhat, and the ring becomes a little bit more for entertainment purposes. The ring also gets a little bit smaller, uh, helps intensify the action, and it becomes uh, like a game of King of the Hill and seeing how many people you can beat or throw out of the ring in a given time before essentially eventually getting beat yourself. So these battles on a raised ring even feature in Water Margin, one of the four Chinese novels that we mentioned back in the beginning of the show, uh, alongside Journey to the West. 
So we're seeing in a roundabout way Toriyama incorporating elements from those other important works. In Japan, this idea influences sumo culture well. Yeah, and the, and the tournament even has some real-life counterparts. This was some of the craziest stuff I learned about while looking into these episodes. In 1928, an article gets published in the Beijing Times about the benefits of Chen fighting style, and that those who are unfamiliar with Chen fighting style should check it out. The population of Beijing, or at least those who practice martial arts in Beijing at the time, mostly consist of Yang-style masters. They perceive this as a challenge and openly confront the Chen-style master living in Beijing, who is a descendant of the original man who invented the style. He then takes on all comers in a Leitai and defeats 200 people over 17 days. His school then obviously becomes very popular. Then... In 1929, in Hanshu City, an actual official tournament is held. It lasts 10 days, and then some of this might sound familiar if you've watched the episodes or been listening to us, and not just having us on as background noise. (laughs) There are 125 fighters. Their ages range from 7 to 68. Every fighter is assigned a number and then randomly fights a person of a different number chosen by lottery. Some people do forfeit as soon as they see the level of competition. The rules, though, are that you must win via submission or ring out. The competition is intense. Some of these battles last dozens of rounds, taking hours. One of them lasted like 60 rounds. Two men die. And then the finals are called off out of fear of further loss of life of all these. These are these aren't just like people competing. These are masters of dojos. And the fear is that these national treasures are all going to kill each other. (laughs) So the winner is then chosen by voting and a panel of judges. Now, Toriyama, though, as we've said before, The man is not a researcher. He wouldn't have read Water Margin. He wouldn't have looked at microfiche and found these real-life examples. And he's never outright stated where his specific influences come from in regards to there being a tournament and a leitai. But we obviously know that he likes movies. And many of the kung fu movies he enjoys feature tournaments. King Boxer, a.k.a. Five Fingers of Death, is a notable Hong Kong martial arts film directed by Zhang Chenghua. And it stars Lo Lei which paves the way for kung for the kung fu movie boom that happens in the 70s and that opens the door for Bruce Lee to become an international megastar and guess what king boxer features a tournament and guess where that tournament is fought on a leitai shocked we also know Toriyama is a fan of that movie because he uses plot elements of it to inform the next tournament that's featured in the manga uh, another prolific martial arts star, Jimmy Wang, is in a movie called Master of the Flying Guillotine, which I've seen like probably 20 years ago at this point. And that means I was probably in college. And so I was probably very not sober, but it is a fun, <laughs> fun movie. But that also features a tournament and hint, hint, hint. An over-the-top ring announcer who announces the action in everyone's names. By the way, Tori was asked why he goes from having a referee in the prelims to this announcer in the quarterfinals and beyond. And, shocker, uh, he says that he just forgot about the referee at all. (laughs) Seems to be a running theme here. Uh, The kanji at the beginning of each episode of the tournament proper is the boo in Budokai. Uh, which means martial arts and is revealed akin to the way the Golden Harvest logo was revealed in the opening of a lot of the old uh, kung fu films that he he enjoyed. Uh, the ring's still a leitai, but it's more specific type now called a bubutai, which is meant to represent the, the homonyms of boo for martial arts and boo for dance and encapsulates the yin and yang energies of the tournament. Uh, there's a wall on the backside of the ring with demon faces meant to scare away evil spirits. And the reason there's a gate is to represent again, that the fighters are leaving the spiritual realm and re-entering the earthly realm, earthly realm 
to fight and entertain a crowd. Uh, they're going from a private space with only other warriors who each follow their own codes and ethics to a public arena where they are viewed as a spectacle. There are tons of references, Easter eggs, but not if you you know want to pause every time there's a crowd shot and take a look. Um, he references the Sturgis motorcycle rally with a uh, patch on one of the, one of the the uh, spectators' jackets. Uh, he draws in Clark Kent. Uh, he puts in Doctor Slump characters, and he even put his wife. Toriyama doesn't know who's going to win each battle. He says, I often say this, but when I when I probably shouldn't, but I hadn't decided who would win the matches at the Tenkaichi Budokai, so even I would be drawing it in suspense. I figured I'd take it uh, I'd let it take its own course at the time. Dragon Ball as a whole was like that though. End quote. <laughs> so yeah, he's like he's like, I figure at the time, I kind of figured I would just, you know, let things figure themselves out. Actually, wait, that's how I always did it. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that's right. My personal ethos is fly by the seat of my pants. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those a lot of those Easter eggs and references are like they're, you know, I don't I don't want to draw too much into them because they are just Easter eggs and references. But like there's even a little more to them than you might think. Like the reason he uses Clark Kent and not Superman is because he draws on like Kent paper or something like that. <laughs> um, because, because people like, and, and you might be sitting out there sink thinking like, Oh, well of course he wouldn't draw Superman. Superman wouldn't fit in there. But like he includes like the scarecrow from the wizard of Oz as one of the, one of the watchers of the tournament. He also has like, have you ever seen return to Oz? Yes, I have. You, you know the the pumpkin headed character. Yes, Jack. like that that guy's in one of the one of the crowd oh, shots. I haven't so caught like, him yet. I'm gonna have to go back and look again. So, and that might be a manga specific thing as opposed to the anime, but still, like he's he's not opposed to drawing in something that really doesn't quote unquote fit the scene. I mean, it's it's so, a, it's a world where like anthropomorphic animals are a regular thing. Right. So. <laughs> so so the reason he uses Clark Kent instead of Superman is because of the there's that double reference with it being like this is the paper that he likes to use. He does the same thing with um I I can't remember the name of it, but like there's a character that wears a hat that has something written on it that is like it seems like a nonsense word or something like that and it's the type of pens that he uses when he when he draws. <laughs> so these are like the, those are the kinds that like he's just slipping in like those are the kinds of easter eggs and references and things that i i think are actually like really cool you know because like he's not i i feel like you're probably not doing something like that out of laziness you're probably doing something like that to be playful and fun i mean i i i could also see it being a product of laziness from being yeah. honest yeah you could. like you're just like he's just sitting there at his desk going ah crap what do i put here and then like he's just looking at the page and happens to glance at his pen and oh yeah i'll, I'll just put pilot in here <laughs> um yeah that uh that's something that i want to when we get when we get to those kinds of things like some of the english words that are on shirts and stuff as we go further into the series and especially into Z, I definitely think there's some fun discussions to have about things like uh, why Krillin is wearing a shirt that says tacos. Um, <laughs> because they're delicious. It, it, there's there's maybe more to it than that. Um, <laughs> but but, you know, why 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 Piccolo is wearing a shirt that says post boy. <laughs> <laughs> that is the greatest outfit of all time, by the way. Um, is that the one where he's wearing like the backwards baseball cap and everything that says Goku on it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, so so how do we feel about the tournament itself as a storytelling device? Uh, do you agree with Toriyama and Torishima on it being a good transition? Uh, do you think you agree with like the hey this this is like this draws people in and you don't know who's gonna win and who's gonna lose? I mean. To an extent, I mean, obviously, you're, you're, the assumption is that your main character is going to win. 
it's also kind of fake. So even if he does lose, it's not like he's dead or he's got to be removed from the story. I think it's a great storytelling device. I I mean, it's it's such a good storytelling device. It it's becomes a shonen manga. Like this is it, it's it's a thing that I can't even think of a of a shonen manga that doesn't have a tournament in it it's some sort. Yeah, even One Punch Man has it. And yeah, yeah, they have a whole thing with him doing a um the the martial arts tournament. Yeah. yeah. Where he wants to he wants to learn martial arts even though he's strong he has no technique or whatever so he he figures he figures there's some deeper meaning to it or something like that if i remember right yeah so he wants to learn martial arts so he enters a martial arts tournament as someone else (laughs) huh i wonder where we've seen that before yeah (laughs) and yeah i mean i i love the tournament arcs and to to an extent this it's weird this might be my least favorite one in terms of the suspense of who's going to win and lose because you you know that like Goku and like the the characters that those two go against especially in like you know Krillin's first match like against Bacterian you know that guy's not going to win you know and and, and you know Giren isn't going to win so like some of that, right, doesn't work so well. Um, whereas I think maybe in term in those terms, the next tournament is the one that's kind of the most interesting because it has like it has Jackie Chun and Yamcha and Krillin and Goku and Tien and like all of the characters that are in that tournament are ones that we know. So we never know when each one is gonna go out. Yeah, and the other thing is is a lot of them each other well before the final, so you know one of them has to lose. It's it comes down to right. a question of which one is it going to be. Right, and that that's avoided in the first round of this big time, you know. Yeah. Um. So that from from that point of view, I don't know that I agree that people are wondering who's going to win and lose. Although in the next rounds, sure, right? Yeah, I think it. I think. Potentially in both of the next fights, you could make an argument that you don't know for sure who's going to win, right? Because spoiler alert for for you know the next couple episodes, once Krillin loses to Jackie Chun, it's on the table that Goku also loses, so that they like in ter- in storytelling terms, they're at the same level, right? You know, um, so yeah, it's. I, th- I think it's a, a little bit of a miss on that point in the first round, but it becomes certainly, certainly that. I think sort of intrigue. I think in the next. I round. agree with you. I think the second one's definitely a, a better one, and it's got way better story arc. Um, but I do enjoy kind of the fun, the fun factor of this one. Oh yeah, uh, like the bacterian fight, super fun. There's that piece of it, yeah, for sure. Um, I like the I like that like we we talked about when we talked about Giren like I like the interstitials of the you know like anytime they're all kind of hanging hanging out before their fights you know you get that that pretty cool moment where where Giren is like eating the the meat and he's throwing it down and and Nam is like how wasteful like how like disgusting and then Goku sits down and he's just going like toe to toe on eating um that's like a and fun, then, and then Nam's stomach starts growling. Yeah, um, I like that little stuff. So, and and I do agree with the idea that like a tournament of any kind, whether or not you're particularly invested in who's going to win each specific individual match, it does feel like an event unto itself, and so. It was a really smart. I mean, obviously, you could say in retrospect, obviously, it was a smart decision. But like, even at the time, you would think, oh, this is like a smart decision to try and give it a real shot of being popular and and giving people a real chance to get on board with this. Because even if you haven't paid much attention to the training piece of it up to this point, that tournament is is the event. Right. It's 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 something you can look at week to week and, and kind of chart the progress and 
and talk about. So I, and, I definitely think with the training, like we saw glimpses of how Krillin and have improved, but now this tournament is a, is really a way for, for Toriyama to show just how much they've grown so that when we progress further on with the story, we now have a new benchmark for those characters and what they're capable of as well. Right. Right. And it's that, I think it's that idea of, uh, explicitly showing character growth in, in a physical sense that makes it interesting. Right. And speaking of character growth, how do you feel about Krillin's change from, you know, being a little more antagonistic to by, by the end of this, like he's friends with Goku and, you know, they're cheering for each other and rooting each other on. Do you think, is it, is it done particularly well? Do you, is there any way that it, that it lacks to you? I think it's done really well. Krillin had a life before meeting Goku and Master Roshi, and it has molded him to be the person that he is. And him change upon being exposed to Goku, training with Goku side by side all the time, as well as learning from Master Roshi. And and it's the – I also kind of like that impish nature that he has in the beginning because it, it's kind of funny and plays on that very innocent character that goes – yeah. Um, and, and watching him sort of like take advantage of Goku in that in that one uh, spot in the training where uh, Roshi throws the rock with his 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 character on it um, and trying to first trying to fool Master Roshi and realizing Master Roshi is no nobody that he can fool. And then he decides, well, I'll go fool the chump that I'm training with so that I can eat dinner. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, that's an interesting point. Yeah. And just watching him slowly like. And you, you watch other moments like uh, with the sprinting. Krillin's pretty full of himself because he is he is a fairly athletic individual and bragging about his speed and then watching Goku completely demolish his speed. And then the both of them watching Roshi completely demolish their time records. And he kind of realizes, oh, I've, I've stepped into like a whole other realm as far as martial arts are concerned. And he seems to internalize that and realize that who he was before is not going to be enough going forward. And so he starts to change. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause when I, when I was watching these, if at times there were times where it felt like it was almost happening too fast, right? Like there wasn't a, a good, good impetus for him to go from being a little bit more of a jerk to a little bit more, sympathetic i'll say uh but you know i i do think it's there and then i think the the part where where it starts to really really work for me is actually again to jump ahead spoilers or whatever the, the next episode when he and goku are in the semifinals together and the announcer is interviewing them and you know asking them each like kind of where they came from and how old they are and all that stuff. And Krillin is playing obviously like the straight man. Like, like I talked about, it's that, it's that Monzai kind of comedy and Krillin is playing, playing the straight man. But even just the way he talks to Goku, he's no longer seems he's no longer looking down on him as much as he is just mildly exasperated by how naive this guy is like like it still surprises him at times he's been training with him for almost a year and even he still is like you don't know what a microphone is you know (laughs) why are you taking your pants off in public yeah uh just just seeing how i think that's maybe the one piece that's slightly missing between us you know supposed supposing to be rooting for him or you know kind of viewing him as a rival versus rooting for him in this batch of episodes is another little moment or two where the krillin that we meet in the first time we meet him would have been irritated or felt superior to goku and the krillin that he's become now at this point is just like oh you you scamp you know um so i think i think if something like that could have been just in there a little somewhere else it would it would even work better and not not that it takes that long for us to get it you know in the grand scheme of things so i do think ultimately by the time we come out of this tournament 
their friendship is is well established and Krillin is well established and reinvented so to speak as a protagonist more so so I don't know is there any any other highlights or anything we want to talk about with the, the Tenkaichi Budokai quarterfinals the announcer's awesome I love him as a character and that he sticks around unlike the referee from the prelims <laughs> he is like he also has like some sort of inspirational points to him too um although nothing nothing super specific just like that little thing of like master of the flying guillotine also has a guy who's announcing everyone which is just kind of interesting it's it's fun it's fun when you see something that toriyama like really I don't, it, it, whenever you see something pop in that he seems to have very much crafted kind of out of the blue, it makes you appreciate the homages and the twists on those things just, for what just, they yeah. are more, right? Because you're like, okay, this he's he's obviously capable of being like completely original. It's just he's trying to make a joke or he's trying to do something like, you know, make a reference, whatever. And that it's, it's that it's he, I think he really does a great job of walking that fine line between references <laughs> and, and member berries and, you know, crafting new stuff and forging new ground. Yeah. And I'd say he, he, he definitely dances that line very well. Hey, you quit sifting through this garbage with your stomach and start using your eyes? What? It's rare to find this much pterillium in one spot, ever since it was stopped being used decades ago. Is that because your people ate it all? I'm not saying we didn't. Also, hey look! My stomach just served us well. I see a quantum phase generator under that piece I just picked up. Better lucky than good, I guess. Grab that, and we'll take it back to the clappage peep. Yes. We need this piece. This piece. Can you install? You know, speaking slower won't help him understand you better, right? What's he motioning with his arms? Why does he keep crossing them over his head? It's not something I'm familiar with. Yes! Yes! See, though, he's, he's pointing to the sky now. Yes, we'd like to head back out. Install this piece, and we'll be on our way. Say, did it... Did it just get a little darker? Look! It is a prison! I told you! I told you they're raising some sort of capsule out of the ground to try and trap us. Well, it seems McKinney is right, listeners. We're watching as a clamshell cage or capsule is beginning to close up about 20 feet over our heads, threatening to trap us here for who knows what purpose. And so we'll take our leave of you now. Quit signing off and let's fly out of here. I'm right behind you. Will we be able to fly through the remaining gap before being trapped? Will we forever be prisoners of this desolate waste of a cafage eater planet? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. Final Form is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza.
The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 